Because that's S H I T. That spells shit. We're aware, and I know that's fucking weird. But listen to this shit. Hi, listener. Welcome to Shit. I'm Bethany V. This is a really special episode today. I have interviewed a very dear friend of mine. Her name is Esther Kwan. And I actually met her in my virtual group therapy that I was doing in the summer of 2020. And some of you may remember that I was doing group therapy. It was it was brief. It was lasted a month, but it was helpful to me uh, during the period that I was getting back on my meds, which was Zoloft. This is sponsored by Zoloft, by the way. It's not. They don't They don't need any sponsors. But anyway, Esther Kwan is someone who I, I gravitated towards pretty early. Um, I just noticed that we had a lot of things in common and she was just a very sweet and caring person and very thorough and just seemed to be very self-aware and in tune with other things i don't know it's kind of like um when people go when people experience things and then they go out and then they kind of make a career out of people helping others who experience those things i just sort of see that in esther like when I when I met her, um, she had recently been diagnosed with bipolar two, and just the way that she shared during group therapy, I just remember thinking to myself, she's probably going to be a therapist, and she may or she may not, but but regardless, she just has a way of explaining her her feelings and thoughts and. She's just very wonderful to listen to, and she's had a lot of a struggle in, in her life with with her her mental health. Um, but she's she's so I just I see so many creative gifts in her, and I see so many just wonderful attributes to a beautiful human and I was talking to her recently and she was sharing some things with me and I thought I really want to have her on this podcast to share her story and there's 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 a lot this is about a two-hour interview so if you feel if you feel up to it you know give it give it a listen um Ultimately, we're going to be talking about Esther's history with with eating disorders, bipolar 2, and then borderline personality disorder. So we kind of cover the gamut. And another reason why I wanted her to speak about this is because when we get to the borderline personality disorder portion of it, um, I didn't quite realize ahead of, ahead of 
learning about this with Esther is that BPD um, has a lot of stigma behind it. And not only is it uh, very difficult to live with this personality disorder, but I've learned that a lot of therapists um, are quick to not take on BPD patients um, because it gets, I guess, really convoluted. And uh, anyways, it just, it feels, it's just, it feels really unfair. And not to say that, you know, people can't choose who they are going to work with, but it kind of plays on to this fear that people with BPD um, almost always tend to have, which is a, a fear of uh, abandonment. So, you know, for, for people with BPD to be less likely to maybe find a, a good therapist or have to look extra hard, um, I mean, it's, it's a shame. I, I can't imagine. I mean, I've had depression and anxiety throughout my life, but Esther's somebody who's experienced just a lot and in a way listening to her story makes me feel like it's it's a miracle that that she's here and even though she um is is you know still has her struggles day to day um she's definitely in a much better place than she was a few months ago when I was really getting to know her and I think she's a very special person and I think her story can really help others and provide some comfort and information and I just am really thrilled that I was able to get her to share her story so without further ado this is my third interview episode here is Esther Kwan. Oh my God, Esther, I, I love you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Bethany. I feel honored to be here. You're, you're a living angel on this planet. Um, so I just, I want to kind of uh, reiterate um how we know each other. So uh, um, many of you know from from prior episodes uh, that I attended this this outpatient group therapy program back in from like mid July to mid August, and that was kind of like basically the peak, the peak, and then like the kind of like the trod like down the hill of my anxiety uh, and depression. I was getting back on the Zoloft, but in the meantime, I, I was a fucking mess. And, uh, you know, I was telling my therapist, I said, I would really like to do some group therapy because I'm going to these 12 step meetings, but everybody's, you know, talking about substances mostly. And I'm really dealing with a, a chemical issue right now. So she suggested the group therapy. Um, we found, I found this lovely place uh, in California. Of course, it was still all over Zoom. And that's where I met, that's where I met Esther. And literally within, I think, a few days, and I was there for a month. And um, within a few days, 
I just, I, I recognized, okay, Esther is someone who is, I, I, I don't know, like I felt, I felt very comforted by her. I felt like she was, she had a lot of wisdom and what's funny, Esther, is I remember thinking, I think initially, Esther seems really fine and healthy. What is she doing here? <laughs> I really, I really felt that way. Um, but we, we started to, you started to share stuff and I was like, oh my God, I can relate to that so hard. And, and a lot of it, I, a lot of it were just like shared feelings and shared fears. And, and you and I are both very empathetic people. And I was very, you know, drawn to that and comforted. And then when I came home to Pittsburgh for a visit, which ended up being a full month, you and I, we started messaging separately outside of the group therapy and, you know, without actually verbally committing to anything, we just started sending each other daily messages. And it was so funny because normally, especially at that time, I think that I, I, that would have felt maybe too anxious. That would have given me a lot of anxiety because I felt like I was committing to something, but it was, it was so comforting because I just felt like you could relate so much and you and it became clear that we were both lifting each other up um, and comforting each other during this time period and so every day I looked forward to just sharing with you what was happening like with my journey you know back in Pittsburgh and this is before I came back to move temporarily I always throw in temporarily by the way because I'm like I'm not <laughs> I'm not leaving California <laughs> for good um <laughs> And we just, so we, it, we just, we just developed this really beautiful, uh, bond. And it's so funny cause I, I, I'm a firm believer that we in life always find ourselves in situations for specific reasons. And even though being in that group therapy was very helpful and comforting to me, um, you know, your, your friendship alone that I took away from that, oh my God, is just absolutely huge. Mm-hmm. It's just like, like what a beautiful gift. There really were some beautiful uh, gifts that I received in 2020. Um, and one of them was your friendship. God, I just <sighs> nailed that fucking monologue. That was good. <laughs> nailed it. Are we done? That was amazing. Said, Thanks so much for being here. Um, Thank you. I really... <laughs> oh, it was so great. Oh, my God. That went better than both of us expected. It, it really did. <laughs> I drank some sort of like this beverage called immunity or, or something. It was really yeah, delicious. Yeah. I drank it just a little earlier and it must've had a lot of B vitamins in it. I don't know. Um, um, but, but Esther, so, so can you just, um, so I was just, just kind of give us a quick, um, like I, I, when we met at, um, in group therapy, I was going through, um, the, the severe chemical depression and anxiety and that was the main reason I was there. Why did you find yourself at the, in that program at that time? Mm, that's a good question. I just first want to say I loved hearing your recollection of how we met. I have a lot of gaps in my memory. Mm. And so um, it was just good to go back to that time and see, like, wow, that was such a blessing. And I also want to say that it was very easy for me. I usually get high anxiety because I, I used to be an avid texter and like commit to long text threads. And, um, 
I'm not really in that place in my life anymore. But with you, it was different because we both made it clear from the beginning. It's like, I'm writing you a long message, but no pressure to write back. And I really felt that, but I still felt the inclination to like share and respond. And um, it was just easy. So I also want to just kind of echo what you said and um, how I found myself in group therapy. It, It was, can I, can really? I, I want to comment really quickly and say, um, I literally just blacked out just for like half a second. What was I going to say? The I just want to say, I love you and, and, um, and thank you for say, and I can completely relate because I used to be, um, I would say like really addicted to texting, like in long drawn out. And then, I, and then it just started to not really be a thing that I wanted to participate anymore, but it was, but it felt it felt it felt very necessary and then and now i'm going to let you continue on on why you were in group therapy um thank you for sharing that and i it's kind of a i was in a long journey before that i was in um eating disorder treatment from september 2019 to about may 2020 and then i was lucky enough to still have coverage by insurance like i thought because i've observed people getting kicked out of programs um when they need it most because their insurance is not willing to pay for them anymore so i was kind of waiting for insurance to cut the cord and say well you've had enough treatment so you're done um but i was in a place where i knew that you know the initial goal to get rid of eating disorder behaviors And for that to cure me altogether and for me to lead a happy life after that, um, I realized when I was discharging from the eating disorder program that I still had a lot of things that I was dealing with. And I was nowhere near feeling ready to go out into the world, even though we were in quarantine, even though um, the quarantine was still fresh um, and we were still kind of in the beginning stages of that. I, I think that also made me realize like I have nowhere to go and I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do anything. What's going on? So I found myself in a really deep state of depression and um, the lowest amount of motivation that I had ever since I entered treatment. And there were different factors that played into that. Um, But for the most part, I think the most disheartening thing for me was not knowing if it was a chemical imbalance and number two, knowing that there wasn't just an easy solution to fix X, Y, Z, and then everything else will fall together and fall into place. Um, And so insurance, they were like, yeah, we will cover you for however much longer, um, we can foresee. And so this group therapy program I got in, um, it was all over zoom. Like you said, it wasn't the, it wasn't ideal for me. Like, I think the best things I got out of that was my friendship with you and being in a supportive environment is better than being on your own when you're struggling. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad I did it. Um, so that kind of is, Oh, I forgot to mention, earlier in the year, I met a new psychiatrist. It was my first psychiatrist ever. And 
I had a month of what she thought was a hypomanic episode where I, I bought like 30 plants in the course of like two weeks. Um, and I was just really obsessed with taking care of plants. And so she thought, okay, this is dangerous because you're not sleeping and you're staying up until two, uh, thinking about your plants and taking care of your plants. And so I'm going to diagnose you with bipolar two, and we're going to get you on antipsychotics right away. And, and, and why did, how did she determine bipolar two as opposed to just a, a regular bipolar? Because, um, I, my manic episode, I think the criteria for bipolar one is that the manic episodes are really severe. So usually people with bipolar one end up hospitalized after a manic episode. And, um, mine was much more mild. You know, I, I, I just spent more money than an average person would on plants. Um, I wasn't going around and being harmful to myself and it wasn't, it wasn't severe enough to be called a manic episode. So it was clear to her that it was a hypomanic episode. Uh, to be fair, she primarily diagnoses bipolar patients. She works with a lot of bipolar patients. So I think that there's a chance that she has uh, a bias, maybe like bipolar lens on. So if she sees certain um, criteria being met, then it's in her mind, she's like, I've seen this before. You're bipolar too. Right. But then it, we both agreed that bipolar one, I was not severe enough to be bipolar one. Okay. And um, you had had, so y you were in treatment for for um, an eating disorder or eating disorders prior prior to this? Um, uh, I, what is your question exactly? Like, do, are you asking if I had multiple eating disorders? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I've had an eating disorder for 15 years. I just say an eating disorder because it kind of just encompasses everything I've gone through. Sure. Um, but just a quick, um, kind of history of the development of my eating disorder. I had orthorexia and was, uh, I'm 5'7", so I was below, I think I, my lowest weight was 85 pounds. And then I went into college as a 17-year-old as like 90 pounds. Mm. And that's different from anorexia. I, I think that I, was per, I could have been perceived as anorexic, but it was orthorexia that bordered anorexia. Mm -hmm. But orthorexia, I was just much more obsessive over the exact amount of food that I could eat, mm. what I could eat certain times of the day that I could eat, but that spiraled when a 17-year-old who is, or 15-year-old that's still developing in every single way needs enough nutrients. And eventually that's going to have cognitive effects and um, also physical effects. And a very common side effect of, let's say, restricting is that the body is so um, depleted in nutrients that it's driven to binge and it makes sense because now it needs food wants food doesn't know when it's going to get food so it wants to store as much nutrients as possible because you're training it to believe that um, sustenance is not consistent yeah. and not enough um, so I struggled with some binge eating during those two years of like orthorexia, probably anorexia. 
Um, but for the most part, I stayed very low weight. And then I went to college and immediately I lost control of, I lost all control and I ended up with a binge eating disorder and the binge eating disorder lasted for seven years. And then at 25 years old, I got to a place where I experienced relief from trying to purge once. And I think most, if not all, I, I want to say most people who develop bulimia don't start with the idea that they're going to do this like as much as they end up doing it for as long as they end up doing it. They always like, I always heard that I just did it this once. And then over time it gradually increased and it gradually got worse. And then, so in the beginning for a year, I maybe went back to bulimia a few times during that year, but I was not full blown bulimic. I would say I was full bulimic. I didn't think I was bulimic at the time, but with the knowledge I've gained from eating disorders, any kind of disordered eating, even if you are binging and purging a few times a year, I would call that disordered eating. And so that developed fully after about the first year. And then it got to a point where when I, it was really bad, I would be pur uh, purging. And I hope this isn't too much information or triggering, no, I, I mean, I mean, I know I'm not triggered. I mean, sometimes this information will be naturally uh, uh, triggering, but but the point of it is to just inform others and help others. So I think it's fantastic that you're sharing this. I think it's very okay. helpful. Great. I just want to make sure that um, because we don't want to get into the specifics, like how I did it, like, you know, ex but then sure. uh, I, I've been and purged probably up to like, 30 times a day from the moment I woke up to 5 a.m. for as long as I could stay awake. Wow. And um, then I would wake up and kind of repeat the cycle. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine that it was really difficult for me to hold jobs, um, maintain relationships, live, live a life. And um, that continued for five years. I would say um, like three years ago, I finally moved out. So went to college stayed an extra year due to my eating disorder, and then came back home immediately. Stayed at home for probably from like 21 or 22 to 27 or 28. So about six years I was at home struggling with this eating disorder. Didn't talk to anybody about it except for my twin sister, who also, that's another story, but she had her own eating disorder. She struggled with bulimia for about mm. eight years, and then she recovered on her own. So she's probably into her sixth year of recovery. Mm. Um, as opposed to me, I'm in my like first and a half year of recovery. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I stayed home um, until I was like 27, and then I got a job opportunity from a good friend of mine who was leading her own department in a startup company at a digital advertising company in Los Angeles. So until then, I've got a couple to few years of working as a manager at my dad's restaurant. So I gained more confidence in myself through that. Um, and even though I had an eating disorder, you know, I had really odd working times. So it's like, I didn't have to wake up super early. So it worked for me. And yet it was a lot of pressure on myself to be the manager of my dad's restaurant because 
I'm codependent. I take on more than I need to. And so I was very relieved to get this opportunity. And I really thought, finally, at 27 years old, um, I've struggled this hard. I've struggled hard for a very long time, but I've also worked hard for a couple of years to get to a point where I can function. I, um, a couple of years prior to getting that job, I started, you know, working out every day. Um, I started meditating and reading Buddhist teachings and just reading a ton of self-help books and journaling heavily. And this whole process in the beginning took four hours every single morning. But it was something that I found if I stuck to it for this amount of time every single morning, suddenly I'm much more at peace. My emotions are much more under control. Um, and it's just the first time that I felt like I could live with myself. Um and how mm-hmm. how was your how was your eating disorder during this time specifically? I was when I first started that routine, I maybe purged like maybe less than ten times okay. the whole year. Wow. So I thought that I was healed. I oh, thought wow. I was healing. And then I would revert, sometimes relapse. If I went out with a friend and I had something to drink. Um, you know, vulnerability factors high. So I would eat too much and then I would relapse, but then I would get myself back up and go back to the routine. And that's what kept me afloat. I needed it because I couldn't survive without it. But then fast forward to, I had this routine down on lock for two years. I was finally ready to leave my dad's restaurant. And then you know, I'm moving out finally. I'm moving in with um, a couple friends, and I'm going to be working with one of my closest childhood friends. She's going to be my boss, so it's not. I, I can be a bit more chillaxed about it, which I wasn't because I'm Type A. Um, I thought my life was going to change, and I was so excited. I was like, I'm finally going to start dating. I'm finally going to um, have experiences like. I'm gonna, I'm gonna live a different life from now on, and within three months, I relapsed heavily. And then after six months of being there, I called my friend, and I was crying, and I just told her like, I can't do this anymore. I'm on because she knew about my eating disorder. She knows she knew me so, and she, she's an amazing person. Um, she is one of the most unconditionally loving people in the world. And for all the judgments that I have of myself, she would never hold them. She, I, and I had a hard tr- time trusting people. I do have a hard time trusting people. So every time I was in these scenarios where she could say something, she could be judgmental, she could get mad at me, she never did. And so I learned that this is someone I can really trust. And that was something that was hard for me because growing up, I didn't have people who were unconditionally kind to me surrounding me so um you know i I knew that i was able to call her and i said you know the reason i've been sticking this out and i have been relapsing for the past two months and i'm just at a point where i i do see myself at the point of um being a damage to myself like actually harming myself or like i can see death in my foreseeable future and so she was like why didn't you tell me this and that and i was like 
I couldn't. You know, I just, I don't, I don't know what I'm going through. I don't know when it hits. I only know when it gets really bad. And that's usually when I leave. I leave jobs. I leave relationships. I uh, disappear. And, and then I really sink into this horrible, destructive behavior. And then when I finally get to rock bottom, then I get the motivation to get up and like say, I'm not going to binge anymore. And I'm going to just meditate and journal and everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. And I'll never do this again. That's been the cycle. And so, you know, I, I told her this and she was like, well, I don't want you to go back to your parents' rest- restaurant and your parents' home because we know where you'll end up if you go back there. And it's going to be worse than where you are right now. So how do, how can we make this work for you? And um, I was like, maybe I need a couple weeks to go on a retreat and just really like cleanse myself. And But I don't want to leave you in the dust because our department is literally just you and me. So um, she was like, how about, you know, you can, when you come into work, it can be a little bit more flexible. So it won't be like, you have to be here at 930 on the dot. And every time you feel stressed, just let me know, you know, just be communicative about it. And if you ever need to take a walk, you know, just feel, know that, like, I'll know that if you tell me I'm going on a walk, that you're feeling overwhelmed, and you'll go, and you'll do it. And so we worked out a a system where I felt much more safe and much more able to handle um, the work just because she would give me simple tasks. It would be like, uh, call a few hotels for our winter party, company party, and just write down what they would charge for this and, um, you know, just the details that we would need to bring to the heads of the company and they'll decide which venue they want to go with. I would look at this assignment plus all the other ones that I had and just freeze. And I'll be sitting there for like two or three hours being so stressed out (laughs) that I would go downstairs to binge and kind of walk around and then go for a walk. And then later I would go back to her and be like, I actually had a question for you and I had no idea how to ask you. So I got stuck like three hours ago Mm -hmm. and now I'm feeling really bad because you're asking me to give you something and I, I feel awful. And she'd be like, and she would never respond the way that I thought she would. She would be so gracious. And she would be like, Esther, like no question is a dumb question. You know, just, just know that you can ask me. And then, so those were all like little lessons for me to learn that it's okay to get stuck on something. If you have a question you can ask. What a wonderful person. She's a very wonderful person. I, I I do value her very much, and I'm grateful for her. Um, so I guess fast forward, I got laid off from that job, um, and then I was helped by her. You know, this is a long story, but I, I received help in order to build up my resume, go to a recruiting company, and they found me the job at Beachbody. And I started Beachbody at February, on February of 2020 as a temp. I was only supposed to be there for, be there for three months. Mm. And I, you know, I function in the black and white. So I was like, I'm going to be the perfect uh, candidate for this job. I'm going to do 
everything and more they ask of me. I even went so far as to read an article that said, if you really want to succeed at a company, you get to know everybody there. And so like my first day there, I said hi to everybody in the elevator, everybody at like the kitchen. And um, I just kind of like put all this pressure on myself to kind of be the person that everybody knows. And, and how far, how long had it been since you had gotten out of uh, treatment for eating disorder um, and then started Beachbody in February of 2020? I, I never had been in treatment before that, never had therapy or anything. The progress that I had made was only on my own. So through the self-help books, journaling, meditating, and exercising. So, the eat, so, it, so that you started the treatment when then? I started treatment... For, for eating disorder. Yes, September of 2020. Oh, sorry, 2019. So every date that I've been giving you. Okay, that's why I was. That's why I was confused. You're right. You're right. 20 February of 2020 was literally last year. Um, rewind everything a year. I was getting my dates messed up, and I was saying 2020 when I meant ah, 2019. Okay, so February 2019, you started Beachbody, and then you started, and then. Gotcha. Okay, now now continue. And also, I'm going to sneeze. Hold on one second. How dare you? <laughs> Good Lord. Okay, if you're going to hold a podcast, I expect you to sneeze beforehand. <laughs> Seriously, guys, if you were listening right now, I hope you were wearing a mask. Also, I think I'm healthy. Particles okay. can go through these phone screens. It's science. I, I know. I know. It's insane. It's insane. Um, it's so, okay. So you started Beachbody in 2019. You still hadn't had and but you had been you had been helped by your friend at this previous job who really kind of like built you up, yeah. really really probably like catapulted you in a way to and inspired and I'm sure you felt very loved because of that and you, yeah. right? So you were like, I'm gonna give this shit a go. Okay, so you're yeah. on the first day and you're saying hi to everybody in the elevator. <laughs> Um, so I, I preface it with that because I killed it during those three months and I didn't relapse. <laughs> Usually it relapsed after three months, but it, but the conditions were different because I was a temp. So, you know, the heads of the departments were not breathing down my neck because they knew that I was just a temp and I only had certain things expected of me because I was a temp and they're like, you only do what you're asked to do. And because what, I did, did so you well, do at Beachbody, I was the talent coordinator, which literally just means I was part of the recruiting department. So employee recruiting department. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have people coming in for interviews. So I was a point of contact for those people. I made sure that I uh, scheduled the interviews because they had three to five hour long interviews where they would meet people from different parts of different departments within the company. Oh, wow. So I had to uh, organize and initiate all of that and yeah. be the kind of middleman for okay. everybody. Okay. I don't um, know if this was correlated to the actual, if this involved you teaching, you know, a, a certain physical um, um, yeah. exercises. <laughs> No. That thing where people move, I didn't know if you was training people. I was I wasn't training gotcha. the people. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Totally different. I mean, you would find how ironic it is that how most of the people who work at Beach Body, at least the corporate like headquarters, they don't work out. <laughs> really? Yes. You 
only have a few select people who are like at the gym every day because they have a gym on site. Yeah. Um, for the most part, most people are like, I'm working all day. I see you going to the gym all the time. I wish I could be like that. <laughs> that was really the response that I got. Wow. Okay. Okay. So you were, so you were doing that and then, but you were supposed to be a temp for, for three months. Yes. Okay. Which is why I excelled at it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, um, I think the, the significant part here is pressure. Whenever I put pressure on myself or feel outside pressure or even imagine outside pressure, my brain couldn't handle that. Mm-hmm. And it would go to disaster, catastrophic thinking. It would go to black and white thinking. It would go to um, me because having to be you felt like a- you needed to be perfect. Perfect. Like it needed to be perfect. Perfect. And you had probably, you probably didn't trust yourself and you had no faith in your abilities, uh, obviously based on what had happened up until now Yeah. and, and whatnot. Okay. I had no faith. It, it doesn't, ma- it didn't matter how many times people were telling me I was doing a good job or this and that. And unless I heard it, I was always assuming that I was doing a bad job and it would get to me. And, um, you know, that, that's a significant part of why I usually would, um, crumble under the pressure of even like a part-time barista job which to be fair they're very difficult part-time barista jobs are not easy they are and if you can't get that foam just right that'll drive you up a fucking wall i've done that myself Mm -hmm. unless you work a coffee bean and then doesn't matter what your phone comes comes out to be (laughs) like they have different standards lower standards i'm sorry for coffee bean lovers that might be out of line but i worked there that's okay I always liked coffee bean. I never noticed anything was up with the foam. Clearly, I'm not a coffee really? snob. Yeah. No, no. This, is, I'm this not podcast is sponsored away. by coffee bean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking that away from you. No, no, no. I, to be fair, um, I just had a different idea of what, you know, latte foam or, you know, frappuccino foam should be. It's, that's that's it. No, it's totally fine. But yes, being a barista, <laughs> anything, anything that you write, any position that you you didn't, you feel like you just couldn't, right. There was, there was pre- any, any instance where you felt like you had to perform Pressure. or somebody yes. was holding you accountable. Yes. It was too I would, I wouldn't know what to do with that. Um, and I would, you know, that what the funny thing is, is that I would look around me and people are fucking up left and right. And people are making mistakes and they're having conversations about it and they're being real about it. Sometimes they sweep it under the rug. Sometimes they tell their coworkers. Um, sometimes they even tell their boss and then they have a conversation and they're like, okay, moving on. That's the healthy thing to do, right? <laughs> but for me, I was so scared of confrontation and I was so scared of being told that I did something wrong and I didn't know how to handle that. And so it was it was easier for me to anticipate all the things I could do wrong and drive myself crazy, to be honest, with all the, um, just the perfectionism that I put myself under. And so after I was hired full time, that's when shit hit the fan. Because now as a part of a team, you are expected to, to do more than, you know, what's laid out in front of you and what's given to you and to maybe move up in the company you want to show that you're a team player and that, and so my problem was that now everybody from the HR, cause recruiting an HR, we were kind of like working together and uh, technically we were under the HR 
uh, department. So we had a uh, the director of human resources. I think even like she was like she had this grand title too. I just can't remember it. She was what you think of as the modern day Cruella Deville. Um, literally, she spoke like her, dressed like her, and she was a Did woman. She had one of, of those little uh, plastic holders thing for for her cigarette. Uh, luckily, she couldn't smoke. <laughs> I don't know. If she, I don't think she smokes. So, luckily, no. But maybe she just had one in her office, and I never even noticed it. Okay, so I was too was, scared. Nonetheless, she was a grade A bitch. Okay, continue. She was. She was actually delusional. I, I want to say that, like, that's me. That I, I want to say that's, like, very, that's that's kind of, like, a rude statement. But <laughs> most of the people agree that her way of leading the team was ty- tyrannical. It was um, very, um, what do you call it, micromanaging. Mm-hmm. And she would obsess over weird things. Like, my director did not care if we worked at, on our desks. We could work at the lobby, outside, wherever we wanted, as long as we got the work done. Mm-hmm. But then she would come and be like, why aren't your employees at your desk? You know, this is important to me. I want to see them sitting at their desks. And then so he had to come back to us and be like, actually, the head says that she wants, because like, she worked, she, she, she was a working woman maybe like at a, definitely at a time when they worked a certain way and they expected certain things from their employees. And she had to kind of like, she had to be a certain type of woman to get to where she is today, mm-hmm. like to reach the top. So I get, and I understand that she is a woman of certain values and she had a way of running her department in her business but how did that how did that affect you while you were working there i quickly the paranoia came back quickly the chronic lateness came back quickly because i would dread going in i would find myself thinking about food more i started hating the work that i had to do I started saying yes to everything everybody asked of me, regardless of how much I had to do. And I also started undermining the work that I was doing because I was observing the people around me and they were kind of really passionate about what they were doing and they really cared. And I was still doing like basically clerical administrative work. So all of that combined, um, within three months of being hired full time, I relapsed heavily mm-hmm. i was i was um binging and purging in bathrooms at at work mm-hmm. i would um i was still keeping up this esther's always happy and chipper and saying hi to everyone while i was struggling and very quickly that wore me down and and i didn't see a way out of it i so that was really difficult. Wow. Yeah. And and then at some point, so you so you relapsed. You were there for a few months. How did you end up leaving that job? And did you go directly to treatment from there? I was throwing up so much that my stomach was um, 
doing something weird. It was really painful. Um, initially, it started off with it just felt like there was a bubble inside my stomach that wouldn't go away, and it was so painful. And then so every night I would cry and I would try to meditate and try to make it go away. And then eventually it got so bad that at work I couldn't focus on it. And then one day I came in, sat down, my coworker comes to me and she asks me a question and then I just break down. I start crying and tell her how much pain I'm in. I can't do this. And then so she walks me out. You know, I, I obviously tell my director and then she walks me out. I make an appointment at um, my doctor's office. And that day, I get some kind of medication to help ease the pain. And I get a letter to my team saying, Esther's going to miss the next couple days. You know, she's, uh, we advise this. And um, after the two days, I realized I can't go back. Like, I don't know what it is, but I can't go back there anymore. I know what it is, but I just, I knew that. And then so I went to a gastroenterologist and then she wrote, Esther's going to be gone for a week. And then during that week, um, I was relapsing, even though I was like going to the doctors and being given medication to help it because it was caused by the binging purging, I was still purging because I found myself alone in the studio waking up to nothing except the thought of, well, I'm going to just eat now. And so that turned into another doctor's note, another doctor's note that said, we think it's best if Esther's gone for a month. And then during that time, I went back home where I was literally eating boiled cabbage and porridge that my mom made. And it was so painful that I would eat some of the boiled cabbage and then I would go outside and meditate for like 30 minutes crying because it was like, it was just that painful. Wow. And then after about a week of that, I went back to my friend's place. He was out of town. So he was like, you know, you can stay at my place. And this is one of the things that I felt a lot of shame about that, um, couldn't tell him, couldn't tell anybody, but I ended up eating all this food and purging it. And then, um, and I stayed there for a week. So I had to go out and spend all this money just to, re you know, restock his cabinets mm -hmm. and make sure that he got like, it looks like nothing happened. And that was a story of my life when I was living with roommates. That was the story of my life when I lived at home. But it just sucked to know that I am on leave. I don't know what this means for my job. And my friend is being gracious enough to say, like, use my apartment so you don't have to go back to yours. And I'm still engaging in this behavior. So it was a really shameful time. And I um, and I, I, I was playing the victim mode, like, oh, what was me? I can't control this, this and that. And I called my sister. And... I didn't get the usual sympathy from her. I got, you know, you're thir you're 30 now. You're yeah, like 29, 30 now. And everything changed when you came back home in the state that you were. The family was fine. Mom and dad were fine. I was fine. And once again, because of your eating disorder, you know, just 
our parents, they're stressed now. And they're going to be 60, they're going to be 70, they're going to be 80, and we don't know how long they have on this planet. Mm. And if all they know is you having your eating disorder and they're going to have to worry about you for the rest of their lives and then pass like that, I will never forgive you. And yes, it, you know, uh, to be fair, it, to me, it was a very harsh thing to hear. And at the same time, it was reality. That was very much true. I could go on for the rest of my life and say I'm a victim to my eating disorder and say, like, I had no other choice. But the bottom line is that if I got to a point where my parents weren't on this planet and they spent the rest of their lives worrying if I was going to kill myself or not, then I would carry guilt with in my heart and mind for the rest of my life. And then especially because she pointed out, she was like, I know you did everything you could, but I think you've shown yourself that you can't do this on your own. I think you've shown yourself that, yes, I've seen you. I've seen how much you've changed and I've seen how much you try and how much you've grown. And at the same time, for some reason, this is too big and too hard for you to do it alone. And so there are places like residential, like rehab, basically, and you need to go, go to rehab. And when I heard that, I was like, in my mind, I was like a child kicking and screaming. I was like, hell no. And the first thing that came to mind was, what about my job? I told them I was going to be gone for a month. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And um, she made me promise that night. She was like, Esther, you're going to say it out loud. Tomorrow, you're calling HR. You're telling them you can't come back because you have a very serious condition to treat. And then you're going to call residential places and you're going to admit yourself. And I, at first I was like, yeah, sure. And she was like, no, no, no. I have to hear you say it out loud. So I was like, fine, I'll do it. So the next morning I woke up, binged and purged. And I was like, okay, it's noon. I need to do this because I told her I was going to do this. And that's basically what started off the whole journey. Wow. You know, it's whenever you were first telling me that first thing she said about, you know, your parents and, and just all of putting all that shame and guilt, my, of course I was cringing. And then, you know, as you continued on, it's just like, oh, right. I mean, sometimes the, the hardest things to hear are the things that we have to hear, right? Because she was the catalyst at that moment for you to because you weren't going to do it yourself. And I mean, that's, that's what happens a a lot of times, you know, when we're, um, a force outside of ourselves kind of leads us to change. Absolutely. Change the, the destructive path that, that, that we're on. And please continue. And, um, do you look just looking back on that conversation, how do you feel, how do you feel looking back on that? Even though that conversation only happened a couple of years ago compared to how it felt when she said it to you then. When I mean, she said it, I was so angry. Yeah. I was like, this is not what I want to hear. I'm in a lot of pain and I'm struggling. So, um, I think you're being really harsh. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but the thing is, now that I look back on it, I, I think that it could have been worded differently. Um, this is a this is another kind of conversation topic, I guess. But 
I've learned that my sister can be very, um, she can be, be very harsh at times. Very brash. Yeah, I understand that. So looking back, you know, I, I felt like I deserved it. You know, when I, when she said that to me, even though I hated hearing it, I was like, that hurts. I was like, but you deserve this. I had no, I had no self-worth. But now looking back at it, I'm like, you know, her wording could have been different. <laughs> but it, like you said, it was the catalyst that I needed. And it was a kick in the butt that I needed. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not mad about it. And I, I know that I needed to hear it. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I had someone to to say something like that to me and to really get me to to do it because up until that point it was always a suggestion it was always you know there's help out there but nothing that was going to get me to do something that drastically different right right and i just want to acknowledge um i, I know so well you know, even if with different scenarios, I know the feeling of wanting to feel like a victim or, or wanting somebody to maybe feel kind of sorry for me. And I, and, and I want to be like babied a little bit and nurtured. Yeah. And when that doesn't happen, it's felt very cruel. I understand. Yeah. I understand how that feels. So I understand that, that desire to want to be like, why are you yelling at me? Why can't you just... You know, but seriously. Like, I can't help it. You know, I'm just a lost child. And really, I was, you know, I was a lost child. Um, So, you know, that's something we're working on is verbiage. (laughs) That's just going to come with a lot of practice and education and time. But, um, yeah, I'm really grateful that, that she was, she pushed me to go. And by the way, I I just, I just want to, just really express my gratitude for you you sharing all of this because I, I'm sure I would imagine that some of this might be triggering you know I mean this also this did happen in the last couple of years and so I just want to I just want to thank you how are you feeling right now thank you for saying that I um it's it's strange I didn't mention this to you before but I I've always felt like an observer, kind of just like watching myself from, because I've been so disconnected from my body and my experiences. So, um, you know, when I tell these these memories and experiences, I kind of just feel like I'm telling a story that I know very well. Um, and I, when I've heard I tell these stories and I, I see kind of like facial expressions and response or just hear what people have to say, I realize that I, I lived a hard life. You know, I, there, I, I could undermine that as much as I want um, and justify like, no, I'm just, you know, I'm just being a big baby and a victim. But it's like, I've, when I tell this now, I, I'm able to see that I've, I've, gone through hard things and my life today my experiences now are still just as hard as ever and so it makes sense it, I, I you know I find myself many times uh, like just most of the time actually wishing that things could be easier and that like 
if I were to do this, then I would feel better and my life would miraculously, miraculously change. And, you know, it's just a good reminder that, um, it's not a miraculous, like, Hey, I'm happy today for the rest of my life from here on out mm-hmm. that I'm looking for. It's that I can look back with more insight and more compassion for the girl who struggled for 31 years and for the girl who's struggling right now. So if anything, it's not triggering. It's, it's helpful to me. That's really good to know. Are you feeling, are you feeling any compassion for yourself leading up into this point? I I think that's universally a hard thing to, um, it's easier to express compassion to other people than it is to yourself, especially when you have a lifetime of um, conditioning to not give yourself compassion. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you know, right now I have a lot of compassion for, you know, who's sitting here in this present day and compassion for the person that did so many things that were self-destructive and you know, I, I carried a lot of shame for uh, losing relationships, losing jobs. Like, it's it's really hard to feel like you amount to anything when the history that you've had has shown that you're only capable of letting yourself down and letting, you know, the people you care about down. And, wow, I mean... To look back and see why I did those things and feel what I was feeling when those things happened with no direction, with very little to no direction and understanding and like just education about any of this. Um, Yeah, I have a lot of compassion for her. And um, that that ebbs and flows. It doesn't, it's not always there. Um, I'm aggressive towards my time, um, towards myself much of the time, very judgmental and self-critical. But the, the hopeful part of this and the part that gives me faith is the fact that there are moments when I can look at myself when I'm triggered or when I'm feeling quote unquote, too emotional or too sensitive, or I'm feeling like I need to run, like everything is too much. I just need to escape this life. Uh, Then I tell myself, you know, like it makes sense because for 30 years, you, you have 30 years of practice in doing that. And it makes sense because this is so close to home to what triggered you when you were like 15 years old. And so I find myself more and more telling myself it makes sense or it's okay or, you know, you can feel this way. And I know that now I have more tools and skills to work through it instead of self-harming. Right. 
Exactly. And it's, and it takes, it takes time. I mean, my God, self-compassion, self-love, self-acceptance, all of that, all of that shit is really, a, is really a practice, right? It's a, it's a practice and it, it's a daily practice because even when you make strides shit from one year to the next, there's always, there's still going to be days. And I find that too. And sometimes they, they take me by surprise because I'm like, wait a second. I thought I was totally healed. I was feeling fantastic last week. And it just like doesn't work that way, but it's okay. I'm quicker to get myself back into a place where I feel compassion for myself. Um, okay. So, so, so getting back to, so, you know, you're, you have this conversation with your sister, you started treatment. Um, I remember you saying your treatment was somewhere down in, in San Diego and, and you were there and you were away. Basically you were away. This was still in 2019 and you spent how many months in treatment for, for specifically eating disorders? I was at the residential, uh, residential eating disorder treatment center. Um, basically just like mansions or like not mansions, but like big homes that they, hold a certain amount of girls in because this wasn't co-ed so it was an all-female treatment center Mm -hmm. I was there for two months and those were the longest two months of my life um, because not many people talk about eating disorder treat like residential Um, and maybe that could be like a conversation topic for next time I'm not sure but because it's a lot that goes on there but just to keep it brief um you lose every everything you think about when you think about like waking up and being autonomous and just having free choice is taken away from you. You have to follow a strict schedule. I was up at like 6.30 every day. Um, you have to eat meals at certain times. If not, there are consequences. And you have to eat a certain amount. And that was six times a day. What, that what are the eating. consequences? I mean, I, I mean, just pictured I pictured a nun coming through and slapping you with a roller. Well, yes, <laughs> that, that's exactly the only consequence we had. <laughs> oh my god! No, um, the the consequences were more like if you you will eat, eat this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yes, yeah. they had someone with that specific voice coming. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> she had warts on her face oh, too. Oh yeah, that's exactly. What, um, yep. Nothing wrong with warts. It's just it was a certain look they were going for. Sure, sure. <laughs> no, it was more like uh, you had to stay behind. You have to stay because we were at the table for like thirty minutes at a time. Okay. So you have to stay there longer and then boost, which is you have to drink this really thick, sweet, chocolatey or vanilla like supplemental drink. And you have my mom a, has a box of those in our kitchen right now. Yeah, imagine just being forced to drink that oh, if you okay. don't if you don't feel like eating, and then you're like, eh, I'm good. And then someone comes, and they're like, you have to eat this plate of food, or you have to drink this. Ensure. Um, and you have girls who are terrified of gaining weight, of feeling full. I I even um, had a roommate who would not drink water. Because there's a certain that that goes into a whole nother thing, but that's just what it like the kinds of the different kinds of um, yeah. disorders that they were treating there. Yeah. So um, and and you couldn't have anything with alcohol in it. So like lotions, they were all taken away from you. Um, tweezers taken away from you because of self harm. 
Um, anything that was remotely sharp, just gone. Floss. You couldn't even have floss with you. You had to, every time they let you into your room, which was 9 o'clock after snacks, um, you had to stay downstairs under supervision until then. And then they unlocked the doors. And then you go to this person and ask them for your sharps, which has your floss, your tweezers, like nail polish, whatever you want. Um, so that was kind of like the life that you had. You couldn't go outside. Um, you can't go out the front door or they would chase you down. And um, if you're sitting at the patio, you need to be in eyesight at all times. And so most people there thought I shouldn't be here. Um, other people are worse off than me. And the reason I say that is because I thought that. Um, of course, being the perfectionist that I was, I was the only patient who was 100% meal compliant, which meant I did not miss or um, not eat a single meal. So within two months, I gained 20 pounds. <laughs> and it was, it was hard. And it was hard to go through the body, um, just hating my body and um, dealing with that and knowing that, okay, after the residential, I was there for two months. Then I went to UCSD eating disorder treatment center Mm. at San Diego. And actually that's one of the best eating disorder treatment centers in the world. And for good reason. And they're heavily DBT based. And that really worked for me. So I was there for about two months. And, um, and for, for the listeners, uh, DBT, can you, what is that? Um, Tell us what that stands for again. Yeah. Um, I just assume that every person on this planet knows what DBT is. (laughs) Um, DBT stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. Dialectical meaning like um, two opposing things can exist at the same time. So Mm. I can be angry and happy or I can um, hate recovery and still want to recover. So that's just kind of like a general like um, definition of dialectics. Thank you. I have to let my cat outside of the room right now. She's scratching at the door. I'm so disappointed. Oh my God. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> it's completely oh, natural. Good heavens. Good heavens. Okay. Um, but I also want to say real quick that DBT is unique because it was created by Marsha Linehan, who actually had borderline personality, borderline personality disorder, BPD herself, and she found that nothing worked. So she created her own treatment like therapy. And DBT is heavily skills-based. There are many skills that you use for emotion regulation, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness and mindfulness Mm -hmm. and those are the cornerstones of dbt and patients find themselves kind of like being asked to use these skills like pick and choose these skills throughout the day because many people who go into dbt um, have like self-harm urges suicidal ideation eating disorders um extreme emotional dysregulation so actually this was the first therapy that ever helped not cure but helped bpd patients like recover and stay recovered okay um and then before we get into bpd and whatnot what do you think because what from what i understand this next place so the the treatment center in in san diego this the second one that you were and you were there for how long I was there for about two months at an inpatient, which was like six to eight hours a day, and then dwindled down to outpatient, which was four hours a day. 
Okay. So you weren't you weren't sleeping there like you were at the at the at the first place. Yes, and luckily the eating disorder center partnered with a kind of like a motel no hotel in La Jolla. So I usually you have to have a roommate. Like you can't just say like I'm paying thirty dollars a night to stay here and I get the whole room to myself. Mm -hmm. But luckily the whole time I was there, I never got a roommate and I was right next to the beach. And it was just a really lovely place. So I had nothing to complain about in terms of me staying there because I also got all my linens changed. You know, like it was just really great to be there. That's that's (laughs) fucking awesome. Um, It's the least they can do is change your damn linens. Um, So what would you say? um, Because this is, this is, this is before, before like BPD and whatnot. Like as far as you were concerned, I mean, the eating disorders were still kind of like, like the main thing. What do you think it was about DBT and this particular place? Um, can you, can you share the name again of the, of the second place that you went to? Uh, it's the University of California, UCSD. So San Diego okay. Eating Disorder Treatment Center. Got it. Okay. And what, what is it about this place and DBT that helped you? so incredibly much with 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 the eating disorders i think um i really liked being there because they had a lot of therapists this is a very sought after if you're like a therapist or a a dietitian or a psychiatrist like you want to work at a facility like this um the therapists were they all had such great energy they were so good at what they did and they clearly had amazing training and they had high expectations on how these groups were run. So that kind of set the bar really high in terms of what I expected out of group therapy because um, they had very structured and very focused groups every hour of the day. And they had people who, um, it wasn't just one therapist in the room, it was two therapists in the room usually, and they really liked each other and they wanted to be there. So that energy first um, was, to me, very helpful to, like, if I'm going to be here all day, every day, then I want to be around that kind of energy. But also they knew exactly what to say. They knew exactly how to handle situations that I've seen other group leaders not know how to handle. Mm-hmm. And I've actually been in groups where I was like, um, UCSD wouldn't have handled it that way. You know? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I think the therapists definitely, um, and it was much more uh, like they had money. Um, they had uh, like, I think it was more of like a hospital setting too. So it was legit. And um, DBT specifically, I loved being able to text my therapist whenever I needed to. So it wasn't, I didn't, blow up her phone but there were times when I would have an argument with my sister or when I just binged or had a binge urge and I would text her and then she would text me okay so like out of the skills what could you do could you take a walk could you take a hot shower could you um like could you use some self-compassion and see like uh like you didn't really have a full-blown binge so maybe that was a success so she would offer these things and I'm a people pleaser, so to make her proud, I would be like, okay, I'm going for a walk at the beach. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so hard to do. 
But um, it was hard. When you're in the throes of a self-harm urge, then taking a walk is the last thing you want to do. So that was really helpful. And I really liked how they had specific skills for, and I didn't understand why it worked for me, but back then, but what I noticed was I like these skills, you know, like mindfulness works for me. I like um, the structure and the guidance, specific guidance they have for situations that we all find ourselves in. So um, I think the toolbox and the skills were something that I really, that really worked for me. Right. And it's funny because we, it's, it's, it's funny how when we find the right teachers, if you will, or therapists or the right source to that, that kind of allows us to open ourselves up to a different way of being, all of these techniques seem to still be simplifying life, rightly. We get so tangled up in all of this shit, you know, and and you include, you know, chemical imbalance stuff and, and, and stuff from your childhood and whatnot. And then it's like simplifying, like let's now you now go for a walk and don't do anything else. And it's like, wait, what? That's, but somebody kind of like giving you permission to do that. Um, and even when I say like simplifying, it's not quite, you know, it doesn't, and anybody who is really suffering, you know, mentally for whatever reason, I think treatment, um, is just, it's just, it's, you just have to, it's, it's necessary. I I do want to, yes. You know, it's important that you say that because these are actually life skills that we learn mm-hmm. in DBT. Like, if you're feeling like you're going to crawl out of your skin from, like, anxiety or anger, maybe you could take a walk or do something self-soothing right. so that you could bring that down before jumping into an argument with a loved one or trying to, uh, like, if you're an actor, go to an audition in that kind of state. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Something that I that really resonated with or that came to mind was we're not I wasn't taught this when I was young. I I did. I wasn't taught like, oh, you're just you're having an emotional reaction. One of the the most important aspects of DBT is radical acceptance. Mm -hmm. So that's the dialectic there. You radically accept who you are, where you are, what you're going through and you're willing to change, you know, but without that acceptance, you're always fighting it exactly. and that fighting it it kind of uh furthers the pain and the illness and actually prevents you from doing effective things to fix the problem and so i found that as a young child i was never told you're having an emotional reaction it's really physical right now because i can like that's just like your energy field that it you need to release that somehow so how about like you want to go throw something so that you can just get some of that anger out or do you want to talk about it do you need to be validated um and can you find a safe person to talk about this with you know oh you're feeling really stressed out you you should take a walk you know just to get your blood flowing and your mind kind of um releasing the right chemicals to soothe yourself we're not taught these things it, like it's crazy to me that we i had to go to um an expensive treatment program that my insurance was like i'm so grateful that they paid for it but and then like in a very like specific setting 
and for me to hit rock bottom to get there to learn these life skills, mm-hmm. that's what's my it it is it is and yet it, it it kind of makes sense at the same time right because somebody has to teach us because yes. even when we learn to do these things for ourselves um yes. more than likely there has to be something that's kind of come in to i don't want to say save us but essentially like put us on the path that we need to to be in and and, it, and in that place was that for you which is which is so um, which is so huge. So, okay. So I want to skip ahead a little bit. So you left that, that treatment facility and, and, and would you say that going there, I don't want to say cured you necessarily of eating disorders. Cause I feel like that sounds really generic and, 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 and black and white, but what is your relationship to those old, um, those old patterns now? They actually manifest in other ways. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I find that if I want to, eating disorders are all about control Mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I still find myself heavily wanting to control. Like I still deal with body dysmorphia. I still deal with wanting to exercise for brain health versus looking a certain way. And so that's something that I have to be very honest about mm-hmm. with myself mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Um, uh, and I still find myself, even with all of the refeeding that I did and all of the working through after I gained weight, I still find that I don't have the most healthy relationship with my weight. Although the things that I think really worked was I put my whole heart and faith into what the dietitians were telling me, what the therapists were telling me. I was all ears and I was just, just really soaking it all in. And something that really made sense to me was, first of all, if you've had a a disordered eating of any kind for, especially when you were young and for years, months, this and that, like months, uh, just to give you an idea of how much food impacts people. In the 1950s, they did a really inhumane study on 30, about 30 healthy men. And the criteria to be in the study was they were healthy, they had no like mental uh, issues whatsoever, and they had no problems with food whatsoever. But they limited the men's diets to 1,600 calories a day, which is actually lower or as much as diets in our recent culture has said that men and women should be on. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, I thought like 1,200 calories was it, you know? Mm -hmm. So these men were put on 1,600 calorie diets only for six months. These previously healthy men, after those six months and during those six months leading up to it, exhibited all of the eating disorder behaviors that would, you know, kind of lead people to seek treatment or be labeled as disordered eating. They started being obsessive about their weight. All they would think about and dream about was food. They would choose like very promiscuous photographic magazines of women. They would choose like food magazines and food calendars over that. And they would, some of them would become very obsessive in planning what they were going to eat. 
people who um, never thought they were fat before suddenly thought they were fat. And uh, many developed binging uh, behaviors and purging behaviors only within six months. And the reason they don't repeat the study anymore is because some of these men recovered within a year. Some recovered, it, some, it took them years and some never recovered after that six month period of time. And these were grown men. And so when I heard that, I was like, okay, I can give myself a break that this is so difficult because I was 15 and I've been doing this for 15 years. And so the message that was always repeated to me was, if you've been struggling with this for 15 years and your body's been, been malnourished and effed with for 15 years, then the process of getting out of that, it's going to take some time. And it's not going to be, um, you know, butterflies and rainbows. It's going to be painful. Yeah. And at the same time, for a body to have gone through that and try to function as a normal body would, it also takes time. And you're essentially building trust with your body. Your body needs to trust that it's going to get nourishment consistently, not over long periods of time, but forever, because that's what your body needs to run function function properly. Yeah. And I also got some diet education, um, nutrition education about how if you have all the macronutrients like proteins, fats, carbs on your plate, there's a reason for it. Our body needs it. Mm -hmm. There are vitamins that are soluble only with fat. So if you are not eating fat, then these vitamins that you're taking cannot do their job and they're just excreted from your body. Mm -hmm. And um, if, and this was a key point for me, if you keep continuing to feed your body with all the macronutrients, and it gets to a point where it trusts that it will be fed, your binging will disappear. That is the only true surefire way that binge eating will disappear because if you think about it, binging happens because it always follows restriction. Mm -hmm. Why does that follow restriction? If you restricted body from, uh, from taking in oxygen, your body only focuses on oxygen. So if you hold your breath for five minutes, then suddenly all you think about is air and all you do after you stop holding your breath is gasp for air. Mm -hmm. If you need sleep and you're lacking sleep, all you can think about is sleep and the effects of this, the sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. So that is no, and I think that's a concept that most people cannot wrap their heads around because we've been given messages about food our whole lives. Mm -hmm. And it's always been misconstrued it's always been con like just it's always been just myth that's been mm -hmm. fed to us for the profit of someone out there and so we've lost the basic knowledge of how it is our bodies function and yeah. why food is so necessary and so my point in saying all of that is my binge eating has almost disappeared if not completely and the days where i do feel a binge urge coming on I think back to what I ate during the day and 99.9% .9 of the time I did not eat enough during the day so that my body is like okay I want chocolate I want chips I want ice cream and so instead of taking that personally thinking man I have no like self-control and I'm a weakling because all I want is sugar and something's wrong with me I think that makes sense. My body did not get enough sustenance today. I think that's been the major changing point. Turning point.
Wow. I, you actually really, um, you, that hearing all of this is actually very helpful for me as well. Um, cause I've always had, and, and I'm not saying this just to sugarcoat it, but I have had a, a peculiar, a controlled, uh, relationship, uh, with, with food. Um, mm -hmm. and, and of course when I used to smoke pot, I would binge, but it was almost as if mm -hmm. I maybe wasn't eating enough calories and then smoking, and then that would be my excuse, my permission to just go ham on a 7-Eleven. Um, and then sometimes with ham from 7-Eleven. I'm just kidding, I, I don't eat ham. But but, but thank you, but th thank you for e expressing all of that. And this is so, it's so interesting because I, we've covered so much on the eating disorder aspect of it, but it but it's such a huge, it's such a huge deal. Um, so I, I just want to get into, so let's, let's, when you, you got out of treatment and, um, and then at some point, I mean, look, you were, you were back, you, you basically left treatment and then you went back and then you were staying with your parents, right? Mm -hmm. Is that yes. when, is that when the depression really hit or, or did the, the, the quote unquote, almost manic episode where you were like kind of obsessing and taking care of your 30 plants, which one came first? Oh, that is such a good question. And I don't think I made sense of it until just recently because there are so many reasons depression can be caused. Mm -hmm. um, I first slipped into depression coming home because of course I missed San Diego. I, I was there for four months. So and you were I was nurtured there too. You were there for four months. Yeah. Oh, and I was just, I was treated, like, people get treatment, like, loving syndrome, whatever it is. I wanted to, like, I wanted to be a patient for the rest of my life, because yeah. at least that way, I'm taken care of, and yeah. I'm loved, you know, and mm -hmm. I'm seen. So, of course, I was grieving when I came back, and um, I quickly entered outpatient here in Westlake Village, um, which was only 15 minutes away from my parents' home. And it was a completely different environment. It was just kind of like a, like what you would think of like a mom and pop, like little small treatment center. And the support there was really great though. So I'm really glad I did it. It was, it was called Alsana. And then that, I think, I think I was only there for a month. And then we switched to Zoom because of quarantine uh, due to COVID. And at first, I loved that because I was like, now everybody is staying at home. I am a homebody, but like, we're all doing it together. So I enjoyed it at first. Mm -hmm. So I actually was high functioning when we all got into quarantine at first. And because the support that I had with Alsana was awesome, I still was kind of in like this, like, man, I think I'm good. I think I'm all better. I now want to become a musician. I now am ready to take on the world. And I think I'll start dating soon too. Like that seems like an option. Once this quarantine thing is over, I'm, I think I'll do all of that. <laughs> and so I, I, I actually got a little bit better. And then I started feeling like not so great. And, you know, I was discharged from the Eden Disorder Treatment Center. I entered the program that mm -hmm. you and I met in mm -hmm. and I quickly saw that this was just different altogether and I hate change what was different um I mean everything right I mean everything like the therapists 
they weren't asking the right questions. They the also group this leader, was still in the begin. It was still in the beginning of the pandemic, right? It was still in the beginning. This was like after May, so June. Okay. So I would say I would say still the quarantine felt fresh, but I was starting to get burned out by it. And, was this mm-hmm. right before um, you had you were diagnosed with bipolar two? Right before. Great. Okay. So I think I entered. I think I entered this treatment, and then in June I started getting plant crazy. And I think it kind of sounds weird to say I bought 30 plants in one go, but really, to be fair to myself, I kind of get obsessive about things that I think are awesome. And I was following these YouTubers who had 300 plants inside their homes, and they were talking about plants as though they were collectibles. And once you got one plant, and you started learning about it, then you're interested in about another, and then you start seeing these things, and it's almost like I was collecting trading cards or stamps <laughs> or something. Mm-hmm. And luckily, Home Depot had more affordable options, ranging from $7 to $30. And so these plants that I saw online that would originally cost $100 online costed $30 at Home Depot. So I was like, well, I'm saving money, so I have to buy this. <laughs> and that's how I justified buying all these plants. And because I was in such a, like, a like oh, this is awesome, I didn't realize that I was falling into, into a trap of, like, you have too many plants. <laughs> like, and if you're not feeling well, taking care of these plants will be very hard. On top of that, I think the most concerning thing, as I mentioned before, was I was sleeping late and I wasn't eating all of my meals. And I, I was losing weight because of it. And so rightfully so. My psychiatrist and my therapist were like, I think you're having a hypomanic episode, especially my psychiatrist. And that's when I started meds. And up until that point, she said, so, so she said, I think you're having a hypomanic episode. And then she wanted to, and then she diagnosed you with bipolar two. Yes. I believe that's how it happens. And, and bipolar two, of course, because like you said, the bipolar wasn't, um, right. The, the, the behaviors weren't extreme enough, right. There wasn't like the super lows and the super, it wasn't quite as extreme. So she, yeah, she was like bipolar and, two. This sounds right. Okay. Yeah. And I want to clarify that. I don't know, even though I've read up on it so much, I still kind of, and fuzzy about the difference but i do know that there's a length of time mm-hmm. that the manic episodes are supposed to last and so that's a huge indicator for uh, clinicians to diagnose someone with um but then with bipolar one or two okay. but my psychiatrist she kept emphasizing the fact that like you're not extreme enough to be hospitalized so i think that's something that they really look at too got it okay okay and then what so what is the first so how do they make you feel real quick whenever they said we think you're you're bipolar too did it did i mean i think the worst part was knowing the stigma around it okay and knowing that bipolar is associated with people like kanye west and people don't have a good reaction to bipolar yeah so um i think there there was some shame there some judgment but also some relief because I was like, okay, if you if we know what's going on, yeah. then I trust this professional to help me. Yeah. Um, but I had med- medication resistance because 
um, at the time I didn't explain it to her, but I'm very prone to um, reacting to subtle changes in my body. Mm -hmm. So even if I feel hot, that can make me emotional and impulsive. If I feel, which I always have stomach pains, but if a stomach pain is induced, then I start going into all or nothing thinking and I want to give up everything and I just want to lay in bed and just watch TV. So it's a very like slippery slope for me to be on something that I'm told has a hundred side effects mm -hmm. to trust the process and wait it out for four weeks because within four weeks I could be very much detrimental to myself. Yeah. And that's why it was very hard for me to be med compliant. Was it, it was it mainly that was there also a medication stigma as well? Just not wanting yes. to, yeah. Yes, I think that being on medication for the rest of my life, that's what I was told would uh, be my future because I have bipolar. Um, that did not sit well with me. And reading up on side effects uh, and looking at reviews, definitely um, my psychiatrist was like, please don't do that because then we won't make progress. Mm -hmm. So that, that definitely played a part. Okay. And, 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 um, and we don't have to get into the specifics of each medication, but I know that yeah. I've shared about um, the, just the, the couple of medications that I've been on through this. So um, do you mind sharing what's the first medication that they put you on when they diagnosed you with bipolar 2? Good question. Um, my brain is so foggy in terms of like remembering the medication that I was on, but luckily I wrote it down here. I think the first med that I got on was uh, probably Risperidone. That's the one that I really gave it a shot. Okay. So Risperidone. Yeah. And um, and how and how long were you on it? And then and how were you feeling with it? Well, so I say Risperidone because that was the longest one I was on. I think I went on maybe Latuda or something right before that, and um, you know, I would just go to my psychiatrist and say like. I feel more anxious or I couldn't sleep last night. And she'd be like, okay, let's switch to something else. So she was really flexible with that too. So the, the, the reason I don't remember these meds is maybe I was on them for two or three days and I would just give up on them. Um, the mm -hmm. only reason I stuck with Risperidone was because kind of like a life changing thing happened. Um, and you know about this Bethany, but I around August or the end of July, you know, I was, I was mostly functional until then. And then I started taking Risperidone and then my sister and I got into a really, really big fight. And this was something that kept us so like, we didn't talk and a little background. My sister and I are really close, identical twin. We didn't get along for 25 years of our lives. A lot of my trauma is based around her. Um, and we're still working on building a healthy relationship, but we love each other very much. And she is, she was, and still is the most important person in my life. So losing that relationship because of that fight, uh, I took it really badly. And um, I continued taking Risperidone. Uh, I want to say maybe I was more sensitive at the time too, because I was on the Risperidone. I just wasn't really myself. And so maybe I was on it for like a week or two prior to that fight. Mm -hmm. And I kept using it and I was on it for a month. We didn't talk for about two months. So a month of taking that, I don't have any memory of that period because I was 
so depressed. I was in bed all day, couldn't function. And that's when I think, I, I think you were there, Bethany, but you might have discharged too. Um, so I think this was actually right before I came home to visit Pittsburgh. I think that you had this. I remember that. I remember you sharing about this in, in therapy. Too. I think so too. Yes. And so, um, it's a combination of factors, right? I lost the most important person in my like confidant in my life. And I was on this drug that was too strong for me. Um, but I was still taking it because I was being told you're having a bipolar depressive episode. So you need to still be on something. If it's not this, it's going to be something else. Mm -hmm. And Um, it was, and how was it, was it making you feel more anxious and couldn't sleep or, or depressed? Do you feel, I mean, and I know that you weren't on it very long and I knew I wasn't on. Yeah. I was only on it for maybe a month and a half and, but it did its damage during that time for sure. Um, I was much more depressed. I was not myself. My dad was, mm. you know, cause I lived with my parents. He would uh, observe me and just be like, Esther, like, I'm really concerned because I feel like you're getting worse. And in program, I was hoping that you would, you were doing better. And then suddenly it's like, I was gone. Like I just couldn't, the most I could do was take a walk and then sit outside and like, just sit there. You're kind of like a reading. zombie a little bit. Yeah. I was a zombie. I was an absolute zombie. It was horrible. And so it's not the case for a lot of people. Resperidone works for many people, but mm-hmm. just for myself, yeah. for some reason, it just made me worse. Sure. I know it. Sure. Um, so in this, in this span, so you had Risperidone and, and Latuda. Is there, are there any other meds that you recall that you, that you tried? even if it was just for a brief period of time? Yeah, I mean, I tried Latuda, like I mentioned. I Lorazepam, I tried. Um, Trileptol. Um, I was on Trazodone for sleep. I think those are the main ones. I was on Lexapro previously when I was in treatment. Little to no effect, um on that and prior when i was in residential i was put on lithium uh for about two months and i quickly weaned off of that when i went to ucsd because they were like you have no business being on lithium so and it's it's so frustrating and difficult because especially if if you don't entirely know what's happening i mean even if when they did diagnose you with with bipolar 2 you're trying out all these things you already have this fear of the medication and what it can do to your body. Plus there's the stigma as well. I mean, you weren't committed to these things. And then of course, one little bump in the road and you're like, fuck this. Right. And you know what I mean? None of those medications were, um, I would say to, at some point I would say, you know, hearing about this a few months ago when we were getting to know each other a little bit, I remember thinking, I don't think she's given these meds a fair shot. But, but, but hearing, but like, but after a little while, it did start to occur to me, you know, it's just because meds worked for me specifically. I mean, look, sometimes people have to go through a shit ton of meds or, or sometimes meds just aren't necessary, but who, but I'm not, but there, nobody can really judge that. And so a lot of it is trial and error and, and, and following your intuition and, and all of that shit. But I know that you've just had a fucking rough time with meds. And I just, 
oh, it's just, it's so bothersome. So, so, so here you are. So you're going to treatment. You and I met you, um, the, the bipolar two thing that was, I mean, as far as you were concerned, you had bipolar two yep. and there didn't seem to be a medication that was really doing it for you. And then even yep. during these periods, when you were kind of on them, kind of off of the meds, um, would you say that you had any more manic episodes or even extreme lows necessarily that they would, you know, deem bipolar esque? I had no more manic episodes. Yeah. I haven't had a, I haven't had a manic episode since. Right. And, um, I've been depressed for most of the time you knew me, uh, you've known me and up until maybe December, uh, I was the lowest of the low, Yeah, just the lowest of the low. And, um, I think looking back, I think it was supposed to happen because I was depressed and these meds were making me feel worse. And then the turning point was when my sister and I started talking again. And then suddenly like 65 to 70% of the depression lifted. But then, but then that was confusing to me because I was like, I've learned enough to know that if one relationship has that much power over you, there's something going on. And we talked a lot about codependency, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But felt more to me like there's something deeper than just codependency because like the literature that I find on codependency is still not encompassing my whole experience here and the literature I poured myself into reading books on bipolar too and um, I got a workbook I read um up the upward spiral I read the body keeps score and um and i was listening to podcasts um from people who have bipolar or had bipolar and a lot of their story resonated with me as as yours does as so many people that i've met has but i still felt like there was this missing piece and this Mm -hmm. missing link Mm -hmm. and um i think that separation from my sister and seeing my reaction to that had to happen because that was a pattern that had kept me in such a weird, toxic relationship, not only with her, but with myself and in response to my relationship with her. And only through that, I, and I guess this brings us to like what we talked about in the very beginning, which is BPD, borderline personality. Exactly. Yeah. So I, so I want to know at at what point, because I know this is still fairly new, Yes. What was it? When did when did a light bulb for, for when did the light bulb first go off that you're like, wait a minute, borderline personality disorder? Yeah, I called you like maybe a few days, if not a week after that. Yeah, like just aha moment, and so it wasn't that long ago. Do you remember when I called you? Maybe it was like a month ago. Exactly. Exactly. It's very recent, and I think I was lying in bed, and. As many of us can relate, a bedtime is like the part of our lives when our minds just kind of, we can't quiet the pain and the the reality of the situation we're in. And 
so much of the time I lie in bed and still feel like I'm, I don't know who I am. I don't know my place in the world. I am living a sham of a life. And I also started to see like, I've been in therapy for a really long time and I still don't think that the therapists that work with me actually know what I really go through internally. I, I give them a very carefully constructed, um, image of who I am and words of my experience, but I'm not really honest about just what I actually experience on a moment by moment basis. And I recalled, and then so the, the term borderline personality just came to me because a couple years back, um, when I was at Beachbody, my sister meant like, was like, Hey, I think this really, this could be something that you might be going through because the guy she was dating at the time was kind of giving her hell. And she was like, what the hell is going on? And why can't I like turn away from this guy? Um, and then that's how she found it. I, I crossed off all this, the uh, symptoms or characteristics except for the suicidal ideation and like self harm. And then the, um, or like cutting yourself and the sexual promiscuity, but everything else. Um, I remember I, I was like, damn, that's me, but I don't want to deal with this. And then so the next morning when I woke up, I looked it up, symptoms, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, this is what I've been looking for. This is exactly what's been ailing me. And my therapists and team have not been touching on. Can you um, can you just very briefly give a description? I know that you've given, you've, you've given us so much information. Um, information and you've shared so much but when you say that you know you don't think your therapists know exactly what's going on because I'm not necessarily being quite as honest can you just give us just like a little blip into what exactly you're referring to yes um the only reason I know this is because the clinical director of the program I'm at now has from the day one said you for someone who like needs treatment and for someone who is struggling so much you put up a really put together healthy front and you just seem really like like there's some incongruency going on because when you talk about things the emotional I guess um, expression isn't there so he caught on that I was maybe acting maybe that's how I had to survive mm. so um you know it really resonated when you said like Esther seems really healthy to be here because that's kind of the the image that I want need to put off I, I don't want to be the crazy patient I don't want to be the difficult patient I want to be the perfect a plus patient <laughs> and I didn't realize that that was actually until he said that. And until these recent months, I, I didn't realize that that was actually working against me because I was not giving myself a fair chance to work through what really goes on. And so like a small example is I'll be sitting in treatment and I'll just be like, yeah, I'm just like, you know, explaining what I'm going through in life, this and that. But then what I'm really feeling inside is I want to cry I want to numb myself. I want to scream. I'm angry. I am, um, I hate myself. 
and I hate everyone around me and I'm judging you and I'm judging you and I'm judging you. And, but I would never, ever say those words. And of course, to be a functioning person in society, you, you're not going to say everything that comes to your mind and every judgment that comes to your mind. But at the same time, there were very little moments, if not at all, when I would be like, I'm really fucking pissed off right now. Or I really feel like a piece of shit. And that's exactly what I'm feeling. Or I want to sit here and like do really harmful things to myself. Mm-hmm. Not self-cut, but you know, in other ways. But, and, but what you were conveying just looked completely different. I looked like this. Saying. Yeah, you looked, you were poised and kind of pleasant and just kind of giving like a description as if you're, you're reading uh, yeah. uh, about somebody else's experience, basically. I'm pleasant. I say the right things. I'm validating. I intervene at the right times. I was, I didn't realize that I was playing a part that, yeah. You realized that you felt like you were right. Kind of playing this part. And, yeah. and so you, you, you had this thought, what it just kind of dawned on you because something was, you just knew that something was just kind of missing or something just wasn't quite like getting through and, and then you woke up and then you, 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 you Googled, I'm assuming, right. Um, borderline personality disorder symptoms. And then what did you find? And then what was your experience when you did that search? Um, what did I find specifically about what symptoms Yeah, Cause you know, I know damn well that I will go on Google searches uh, when it comes to mental health shit. That's just taken me down rabbit holes. Cause it, it can be dangerous, but it also can be very yeah. enlightening too. It's just one of those things, right? Where. Yeah. I, I always have a, like a hard time because, um, I still struggle with the memory issues, but, okay. um, I, I want to do this disorder justice just because there's so much stigma around it. I mean, uh, to be fair, this has been amongst all the psychiatric disorders combined. This BPD has been deemed the most difficult, if not impossible to treat, especially when Marsha Lanahan, the creator of DBT was going through this in like the sixties and seventies. They had no idea what to do with these patients because um, to sum it up, they were just very difficult, yeah. manipulative, and um, emotionally volatile. And that resonates with me because there was a point in my younger, like when I was in my 20s, when I was so confused, I would be manipulative without realizing why. I would be very emotional, emotionally volatile. And I would, um, yeah, just self-harm left and right uh, without thinking twice about it. It just felt like this itch that you need to scratch but um basically the borderline traits are like um, someone doesn't have a sense of identity uh most of the time uh, well-functioning or neurotypical person uh has a sense of who they are you know and like what they stand for and like what they kind of want to do in life um but bpd patients we kind of have this sense of like I don't know who I am. I don't have an identity and therefore I latch on to things. Mm-hmm. And there's this pattern of latching on to identities and changing identities because um, 
we're trying to maybe fit, find the one that fits the most. Mm-hmm. And that does look like sometimes obsession, impulsivity, and mania, hypomania. It could look like hypomania. Um, and other interpersonal. So people with BPD have a really hard time with interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a lot of just up and down communication, um, leaving, maybe they're in an abusive relationship, maybe they're the abuser, um, and they get very sensitive and jealous easily. Um, they have a really, this is another one, it's a strong sense of uh, fear of abandonment. Mm-hmm. So we can perceive abandonment in the smallest of scenarios if a person doesn't text back suddenly i knew it i'm alone in this world and they don't love me and either i did something wrong or they did something wrong and where that person could just be busy um or because i think you know, that i think that a lot of people experience elements of that because i'm sitting here thinking well shit well you know i do that and i do that but 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 there's a there's a there's a difference, right? There's a depth to what you're speaking of. Like there's a genuine, like it feels like reality, right? Yes. Yes. Um, my thing is I, I kind of knew that I should come prepared because I, there's always a list of symptoms that, I mean, I could probably even pull it up right now and describe well, it. And, and you don't better. have to, and, and you know, you don't have to be an expert on it of course because this is still such a new thing which, which is which is another this is it really is so one vulnerable and and and, and brave of you to be sharing oh. about this because this is something that you recently discovered that you have and it and, and it and kind of similar to the the bipolar 2 at least when they first diagnosed you when you kind of discovered this you had a, you kind of had a huge sense of relief, didn't you? Yes. And I think the reason I'm focusing on the symptoms so much is because they are pretty important in um, making sense of this disorder. And I want to make this, this distinction that it's a personality disorder. It's not a mental disorder. So it's not defined by chemical imbalances, although you are, you know, that things can be comorbid and chemical imbalances that are genetic can be a uh, catalyst Mm. or an invalidating environment can be a catalyst. So these things need to be present in order for a person to get the full-blown personality disorder. I also want to uh, say that, yes, you're right in that people can have BPD traits and those traits can just be present. And yes, sometimes they're really difficult to deal with as that's a natural human thing. But you need a certain amount of these symptoms in order to, and they need to be very distressing and cause distress in your life in order to be like in the realm of being diagnosed BPD. But I just want to make clear that yes, jealousy, fear of abandonment, those are very natural human emotions. Now, like you said, the 
how much it controls you, how much distress it causes you, that's the difference. And I've always felt like I've been on a roller coaster of emotions. Um, all of my relationships in my mind have felt unstable. And that's pretty extreme, right? That's 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 pretty in- extreme. And I've, I've been prone to impulsive, even reckless behavior. Like when I was binging, I would uh, drive recklessly. I can't believe that I'm still alive because I could have been in many bad car accidents. And um, I've made impulsive decisions in my life. So um, yes, this is just a matter of severity, I think. And so I just, I actually looked it up right now and I just want to kind of recite them real quick. The nine symptoms of BPD are the fear of abandonment, unstable relationships, unclear or shifting self-image, impulsive self-destructive behaviors, self-harm slash suicide ideation, extreme emotional mood swings, chronic feelings of emptiness, explosive anger, and feeling suspicious or out of touch with reality. And then, you know, obviously you could expand further for all those symptoms, but that's a general sense of what the symptoms are. Yeah. Thank you for, for giving those extra details. And then you, you, you sort of had this epiphany, if you will. And then you, mm-hmm. and then you brought this information to your, your therapist and, and what did they, how did they respond? Uh, my mind you, primary... you know, oftentimes you know therapists you would you would you might expect right that a therapist would say you know what I think you I think there's a little bit of this or I think you might have something like this and, and yeah. sometimes they don't always catch it if you will um yeah. I mean I, I had a fantastic therapist um you know up until just a few months ago that that just that didn't that it never occurred to her that I was an addict maybe just because I wasn't uh, of, of what people would deem the extreme kind, if you will, but nonetheless, and it's kind of like, so maybe in a way though, I was not um, expressing everything. So, uh, or being super honest as well. Right. Because if you are right, just kind of like how you were in any other kind of therapy, kind of putting on a specific thing, right. It's kind of hard for them to, therapists I guess right can still I mean you know they can be intuitive sure but they can only work with what they're given yeah and I think 90% of the time I found that a lot of therapists they need you to say it explicitly because a lot of therapists aren't going to be intuitive too yeah um so I'm really grateful that I had intuitive people ask more probing questions uh but for a long time they i've also had therapists that kind of just took what they saw face value um i think it's really important to keep emphasizing the danger of stigma around mental illness because as i mentioned the stigma around bpd is not just amongst common folk it is amongst people who are trained professionals And that's what's scary about BPD is because you actually have many professionals who will not work with BPD patients because they know that it's going to be very difficult. And they also, the reason BPD is not thrown around just like, maybe you could be bipolar, maybe you have generalized anxiety disorder or like um, clinical depression. The reason BPD isn't spoken 
as loosely like that is because along with the diagnosis comes kind of like a life-changing perception of who you are, Mm -hmm. more so than bipolar. And um, the fact that even therapists and psychiatrists have a stigma against BPD patients was very alarming to me. And it's very frustrating for clinicians who do work with BPD patients and know how misunderstood they are. Um, And a lot of clinicians and therapists are not trained to work with BPD patients. And so that's, that's very tragic to me. I think that's a very tragic thing because um, once BPD patients like Marsha Linehan, who had firsthand experience of what it's like to have BPD, um, the misunderstanding that underlies all of that kind of perpetuates the BPD patients' behaviors as well and their shame and their feeling like they're helpless. And so so when I first came to my therapist and I brought up BPD, she was like, you know what, my mind didn't even go there because you don't fit the uh, image of what a BPD patient looks like. So I wasn't going to just throw that diagnosis around Mm -hmm. with nothing. Um, But now that I've gotten to know you and I know how unstable your self-image is, I know how 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 tormenting your chronic emptiness is how unstable you are with your relationships and how you have had a really hard time maintaining relationships um and along with all these other things uh i can see now that i would be more on the same page with um along the lines of just diagnosing you with that. I'm not going to go there just yet because we still don't know, but I am open to talking about it and analyzing that. And then when I brought it up to my psychiatrist, I was very honest with her and I told her, you know, I haven't been very honest with you. Here are the reasons why I've been med resistant. And Um, actually here are the thoughts that run through my head Mm -hmm. and most of the time it is very difficult to live with these kinds of thoughts that run through my head and so she was like oh yeah no yep that makes a lot of sense you know I I actually did kind of think BPD but I didn't want to go there but you know that makes sense and if that's the case then medication isn't the route that we're supposed to go down it is DBT. And that was, that's what's like, I can't blame her. I understand. And at the same time, it's so frustrating as a patient to be given all these meds. And then like, it's human error, right? So you trial and error, you go through all these meds, and then you find out maybe it's a different diagnosis, maybe this and that. You would think they would just go through a gamut of of giving all of these at least just kinds of quizzes for different disorders or different conditions and things, right? Like, let's figure out exactly what we're, right? Dealing with. And at the same time, it's not that simple and easy. Right. So I get it. And it's frustrating. Dialectic. (laughs) Were you like, whenever she said that, and she mentioned the DBT thing where you like, oh, fuck yes. That's like the only thing that's ever worked for me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> After all this, I was like, I get why we 
had to go down this road. And I get that if we hadn't, then medication and bipolar would always have been in question. So it's almost like Mm -hmm. we had to rule that out. And it's so frustrating that I'm like, I've been asking for DBT this whole time. And like, I was just told to go get therapy. And like, it's different. It is different. Exactly. So even though that was, it was about roughly a month ago, where are you, I guess, well, I want to say today, like how have things kind of progressed as far as therapy goes and potential DBT stuff? What other things have you, or have you explored other things in terms of realizing, I I think, I think that I do have borderline personality disorder. Um, that's a good question. I, I think I'm more in a place of, because I still experience the same emotions and Mm -hmm. I still experience the same impulsivity and the dread and chronic emptiness and just everything that comes with it. And it's just so difficult. And so, you know, I'm going to be honest and say there are many days I wake up and think, why? Why am I still here? You know, and like, what's the point? And I just wish I could find myself today and just move on with my life and live a happy life. Um, And then, you know, I catch myself thinking like that. And it's just a moment by moment process where I have to bring myself back to reality and remind myself that for all the pain that's in my life, I have still a lot to be grateful for. And even though I'm not who or where or what I want to be, I still have to look at how much work I've done on myself and see that that is something to, it's going to be worth something, you know? And so I have to ground myself most of the time. The depression is always there. The, The skin, like, I just want to and I hope this isn't grotesque but I just want to like claw at my skin like rip my skin off because the anxiety is just so extreme um that's still very much real and painful to deal with and like knowing just how (sighs) I hate using the word mentally ill but just mentally how far I have to go in terms of leaving, leading a kind of just balanced, emotionally stable and happy life, it does feel out of reach. So um, my work right now, as long as I'm in therapy, is to be as honest as possible. You know, when I like say what I'm really feeling, what I'm really experiencing and also listen to what other people are going through to gain humility and to remind myself that I'm not alone in how much I struggle every day because like there are so, so many people out there who struggle just as I do. So that's always a humbling thing to remind myself of. Um, I am currently hoping to find a DBT program, but I'm very, um, I don't have much, I don't know. I don't want to say hope, 
but I, I don't know if insurance is going to cover it. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping for it, but I am grateful that I have this diagnosis that I've given myself so that I can read the books that are out there. Like I just finished Buddha, the Buddha and the borderline amazing book that gives more insight into what it is like to, um, deal with borderline personality and Marsha Linehan's memoir. She wrote a book called uh, building a life worth living, which is one of the goals in DBT. So, you know, just reading her book and, uh, seeing that a good life is possible. That's really all that's, that I can do for now is just keep validating myself, affirming that it is difficult and I can do hard things. I'm listening to podcasts just all day, every day, as much as I can to really get in messages of hope Mm -hmm. and skills and remind myself that these podcasts are out there because there are a lot of people who feel the way I do. Um, but I, like you said, and I, I'm aware this is just so early on. It's not easy to keep myself at a place where I say re- recovery will come. It's just self-love that you have to focus on. I think that's the hardest part is trying to love yourself when you know how much you have the cards that are stacked against you. Um, I think that's the most difficult part of my day. I, I understand that. I understand it very well. And, um, and I think it's all the more reason to, to, to try and love ourselves harder, even though I know oftentimes that our knee jerk reaction is to want to scold ourselves for having feelings, let alone having, um, you know, a mental illness or, or a personality disorder, mm-hmm. but, and, and it's just so interesting too. And I know that this is, I'm sure part of your journey with this experience of, of discovering really BPD, uh, BPD in, in, in a big way. But, you know, when you say that you don't know who you are, um, and it's like, and I look at you and I think I know exactly who you are. I just, I just don't, I just don't understand the, the, the struggles exactly. You know what I'm saying? Cause like, I, I know that, you know, you to be an extremely, you know, empathetic, caring, genuine, great listener, uh, just like loving human, caring human, you know, and even though shit has been haywire, for a really long time and you're used to that being your story so it's like well what the fuck gives all of these these things that have always been you have still always remained but i know that it's felt like you haven't really been able to just rest into this thing called life that we're sitting in and it's like, yeah, why, why am I really here? What, what the fuck, you know, if I can't, you know, and, and 
I know that you've we we've talked about this as well and 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 how detrimental comparisons are and um just the fact that you're progressive just the fact that you want to help yourself and feel better that's the biggest that's the that's the biggest thing of all that's the biggest thing of all um um through through all of this it's like the efforts and, and the 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 desire that you have to really um, to want to help your 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 situation that's that's such a big deal I mean that deserves so much so much credit because it's it is it is so significant there are a lot of people out there Esther who are having these struggles who may never know what it is who may you know be living on and, and <laughs> i'm not saying these things of course to make you say like well you just gotta count you you know you're just, you just <laughs> better be grateful because i know that's not how it works but i'm just saying in terms of giving yourself credit not in terms of right. discounting your your feelings and thoughts and 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 struggles but um yes but i i i do believe all, all I and I see this too. I see, and I'm, you know, and 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 I, I'm just so thrilled. There's a, when you told me uh, about the BPD stuff, I, I actually felt a huge sigh of relief, to be honest with you, because I thought I knew something was also awry, and I thought, I thought that Esther is not allowing herself to, I don't know, maybe really receive, really receive love maybe and support on on some level even though you you still kind of were but there were just a few things and it's just when you started explaining it to me i thought oh this is this could be extremely helpful information you know and and um and i'll i'll tell you what i mean the stigma that i carried as far as like bpd goes now doesn't it it now it doesn't seem like well i i know that it's like been very difficult but for me now it's like oh anybody can have any, anybody can have that you know what I'm saying obviously if people are untreated and you know you add a whole other bunch of layers onto somebody's life you know experience um it can look a hell of a lot worse than than what I see when I'm um looking at you I, I'm 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 like trying to choose the words that I'm saying because I don't want this to come off as um oh wow <laughs> that's it's not that big of a deal I mean look at you're fine try not to perpetuate that um that notion right. that that you're totally fine just because you're such a lovely uh, speaker and um, right. human and you're 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 very thorough and, and self-aware you know. Thank you. I absolutely know what you're saying, and I'm not absolutely not taking it that way. Um, I think that is something that, like, the word support came to mind when you were talking about how, you know, you've experienced me and how other people experience um, uh, these things as well. And for someone as like myself, who I, I'm sure I have BPD, and does have abandonment issues and it does have like trust issues and such. Um, it is, as you have 
experienced, it's really, really difficult for me to hear what I'm good at and the positive traits I have. And I never really understood that. I always just thought like, yeah, there's a part where women are conditioned and people are conditioned to um, kind of like not be like, oh yeah, like totally, I am smart and I am beautiful. Like, can I like be demure and humble? And I get that. But when there's like this, like this part of yourself, when you hear something good about yourself, that literally uh, squirms mm-hmm. and sometimes even gets angry mm-hmm. because not at that person, but at the notion that someone sees you as something you know you're not or think you're not. There's there's discrepancy there, yeah. and I think that you know the, the few times we talked previously, um, and you were like. You know, you said to me, you are lovable, Esther. I don't think you, like, if you don't know this, I want to tell you. And my therapist, too, she had to ask, like, Esther, do you know what makes you so, and she kind of, like, stumbled on words, too, because she didn't want to just be like, you're amazing, and this and that. But she wanted to express that people like you, and there's a reason you are so inviting and so... um just you make people feel better when they're around you. And I don't think you understand that it's because you're lovable and because you're kind and because of this and that. And so hearing messages like that, now I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, you want an identity and people are saying this about you. It doesn't mean you're a bad person if you have bad thoughts or you still struggle with yourself. Yeah. It just means that you have things to work through and you can be a good person and a kind person and a lovable person. And I think one of the biggest obstacles for me is letting love into my life in a real way mm-hmm. where it's not controlled and it's not like I choose when I talk to people and I'm isolated most of the time otherwise. Mm-hmm. But it's like I think one of the biggest challenges for myself will be be allowing people into my life and letting them be there, letting them see me and love me and letting that be enough. And that I'm still not there yet, but, um, you know, just, I want to also acknowledge you, Bethany, because you have been such a great support that I never saw coming, but like you and I both have said, it just felt easy. And I think there was a reason for that. Um, I really needed your support and, just seeing you go through the hardship that you did and the things you were doing to get out of it. um, That was inspirational for me, but also just to be able to get to a point where I was like, I see Bethany and I see that she, I can trust her and I, I can see that there's love in her and that you can show yourself to her. I think, you know, I just felt like I had to do that with you and, um, I don't regret it. <laughs> and you really helped me when you said I was lovable because um, even though I don't feel it most of the time, that's support. Like you, like that's why support is so important. That's why get getting yourself outside of what you've been doing, um, the, the shame that you've been holding in, the lies that maybe you, there may be white lies or subtle lies that you tell so that you can keep the shadowy parts of you hidden, that is a lifelong lesson that we all are learning 
like, you know, that vulnerability and showing yourself to the people who deserve it. But also when people show that they're willing to help and be there for you, then maybe t- uh, like just allowing yourself to be honest with them and accept help and also be willing to do things that you don't necessarily want to do or would have considered in the past. And so um, that support piece, I think, is really key. Wow. I I love you so much. And um, thank you. I'm so touched by everything you said and your words. And and you um, have been such a, a support to me and and I'm just so so uh, grateful for you and I know that you're on a journey and I and I know that you are um, doing I I've just seen I really feel like you've still made strides in your own personal development just since I met you in August and that is the truth so even though you know things are um, you know, there's, there's some hardships, of course, and there's still, you know, there's, there's pain and, and, and whatnot. You're doing all of these really wonderful things to take care of yourself and just acknowledging the fact that you want to allow yourself to receive more love, you know, unconditionally is, I mean, being able to say that is a huge step. I mean, that's the first part of it. And it's only going to get more, uh, I think, abundant from here. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you I have so much. much for you. I have so much love for you. Listen, I, um, thank you so much again for doing this. And, um, I think that people who listen to this will, will get a lot out of it. So I just want to thank you so much for your vulnerability. Thank you for having me, Bethany. And just, you know, I think that, I think it's, I don't know. I just think it's so gracious of you to have me and to give me the space. I still struggle with like, I, like I deserve to be heard and this and that. So I just, I thank you so much for encouraging me as you have and for believing in me so much. And like I said, I love you and I'm just so happy that we did this. I'm so happy too, and I do believe in you, and I love you very much. That's self-help ideas and thoughts with Bethany. That was a good ending, you dickhead.